0: Well, Welcome to Grace this weekend. It's good to see you guys. And uh, I am really excited about these guys graduating from the Moody program. Isn't that phenomenal? Uh, i thrilled about that. And yeah, you clap for it. We, uh, we envisioned that about uh, five years ago and just looked and said uh, if we're going to see 30 churches planted in 30 years, which is the big, big goal here at Grace, uh, we knew that we needed to raise up leadership for that. So we needed, knew we needed to raise up pastors and directors and elders and missionaries and uh, felt like we needed to uh, be able to educate them and train them and disciple them. So uh, those guys are the first round through our Moody program and you should, you should give them uh, large cash gifts. That's what you should do uh, because they really, we learned on their backs. They were the guinea pigs that uh, kind of blazed the way. And now there's many behind them and we're thrilled about that i'm also excited to let you know that um, the second half of our atlanta church planning team is in town so if you are part of uh, the SEED Project, which is the three-year window of planting 30 churches in 30 years that we're in right now. Uh, you know that uh, we are helping to plant multicultural churches in Atlanta, Georgia, in conjunction with our missions agency. And I'm very excited to let you know that Peter and Anna have landed now uh, from China. They're here in Akron, and they join Carlos and Emily, and they've all landed, and that team is in Akron And uh, they're going to be here for five or six months downloading Grace, and then they'll move and start that work in Atlanta. So you'll get to meet them more and more as we go throughout the summer here, but excited that they're here. And then also remember the Ellet Campus is a work that's tied to the uh, Seed Project as well. And uh, Pastor Gary and his wife Jenny, uh, Gary Underwood and Jenny, will land here next week. And uh, they will take the, the, uh, the campus pastor over the Ellett campus, and that will start becoming a tangible reality as well. So it's a blast to see God doing all of that. And thank you guys for being a part of it, for your prayers, for your money, for your support. And uh, it's thrilling to see God continuing to, uh, to build the movement of grace. So we're excited about that. We're in a series right now called Jonah, and uh, excited to be talking about this and working, working through the book of Jonah. And uh, We started it last weekend. If you missed last weekend, uh, go out online, go to our website, graceohio.org, or go uh, to the app. You can watch it, listen to it there. You can sign up, get a podcast for free through iTunes if you want. But uh, as we laid out the book of Jonah, we, we, we talked about uh, what Jonah is actually about. So when we think about the book of Jonah, we think about Jonah in the what? We think about Jonah in the whale, right? And so that, that's fine. That's a spectacular part of the book. And it's the one that, that if you grew up in Sunday school, you learned that part. Even if you didn't, you may know about Jonah and the whale. And we said that's a part of the story. In fact, that we're gonna talk about that this weekend. But really the story of Jonah is not about a rebellious prophet. The story of Jonah is about the unrelenting love of God. And when you read the book of Jonah, what, what you have to see is the main thing is God has a love for lost people. The city of Nineveh was a, a city that was rebelling against god and god wanted them he wanted them to know that they were sinners he wanted them to know that he loved them and he wanted them to know that if they turned from their sin he would forgive them and show mercy on them and connect them to him and he wanted that so much that when he told his prophet to go tell him and he refused god went to great lengths to make sure that what we would call the gospel the message of, of god's love wound up there in Nineveh. So we started talking about that last weekend, and we kind of made it that far in the book of Jonah through chapter 1. So just a, a quick recap, Jonah is a, was a prophet of God. In the Old Testament, we didn't have the completed Bible. So a lot of the times when God wanted to talk to a group of people or to a, even to a nation, he would send a prophet and those prophets' words oftentimes are recorded in, in the Old Testament. So Jonah was a prophet, and God said to Jonah, I want you to go to this great city of Nineveh. Their sin or their wickedness has come up before me. Go tell them that they're sinning. Go tell them that I love them. And go tell them that if they repent, the, the Bible word for repent just means to turn around. That's all it means. That if they repent of their sin and come to me instead of away from me, I'll forgive them and, and, and uh, help them to, to live life correctly. Jonah did not want to do that, so he rebelled against God. He became defiant against God. He did not, he hated the Ninevites. He really had bigotry toward the Ninevites because of what they had done to his nation. So he said, I'm out. And that was a big deal. Jonah was an experienced prophet. He had done this for God before. Uh, It's recorded in the Bible in 2 Kings. And he knew exactly what God wanted him to do and exactly why God wanted him to do it. And he was like, I'm out. I'm not doing it. So he went down. He bought a ticket on a boat. He went the exact opposite direction of Nineveh to the city named Tarshish and while he was in the boat God was like I don't think so Jonah right so he kicked up this storm the sailors freaked out the sailors looked and said somebody's God has honked off they went down and they got Jonah and Jonah was like yeah it's mine you know I like I I really am doing the wrong thing they said what do we do about this to, to appease your God And he said throw me overboard And at first, they were like, I don't think so. And then about 10 minutes later, they were like, you're out. So they threw him overboard, and the storm calmed down. And actually, the Bible says those sailors started to worship the one true God. And we left it there, and we just said, there are Ninevites in our lives that God has called us to love and our hearts must reflect the heart of our Savior who loved us when we were enemies of God. He loved us, and now as followers of God, we reflect that love to other people, okay? So let's pick this story up in Jonah chapter two. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Open them up to uh, Jonah chapter two. If you have a Bible there in the, in the chairs or you wanna grab one, uh, it's page 645 in those Bibles. Or if you just wanna use the app, If you hit the Grace Church app, hit live. All the notes and the Bible verses and everything are right there. So Jonah chapter 2, where we're picking the story up is now Jonah is going to be in the belly of the fish. In fact, you see this happen at the end of Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. They throw him overboard. The storm calms down. Verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So that's the spectacular part of the story that... That we always hear about, and all this is is God doing what He's done a bunch of times. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He authors all the laws of nature, and all throughout the Bible, it's not uncommon at all for God to bend the laws of nature to accomplish something specific. So, for instance, He made the sun stand still for Moses. He raised people from the dead. He raised Himself from the dead. He healed people of leprosy, and this one He needed a fish. So He He caused they bent the laws of nature, sent a fish. Jonah Jonah is in the belly of the fish and able to survive there for a few days and that's where we find him in the fish okay so Jonah is there and he's there because he has rebelled against God he's been defiant of God and God loved him enough to intervene in that process and accomplish two things one He loved the Ninevites, and Jonah was going to go tell them the truth about the heart of God, whether he wanted to or not. God was going to accomplish that. And the second thing that would have been on God's mind is he loved Jonah. And he loved Jonah enough to stand up to him. He loved Jonah enough to correct him. And he loved Jonah enough to break his pride and his rebellion and his will in that fish. So this weekend, we're going to have a conversation And we're going to talk about spiritual discipline, because this is what's happening to Jonah. So let me just talk about spiritual discipline here for a minute and kind of quantify it. We're not talking about spiritual disciplines. So when we say spiritual disciplines, we're talking about prayer and fasting, Bible reading, those kind of things. This is spiritual discipline, like a a father or a parent would discipline their child. That's what's happening to, to Jonah. Now, spiritual discipline is only directed at children of God, So if you're a Christ follower, this conversation is a bullseye for you, right? So those of us who are Christ followers, uh, we'll see here in the Bible that spiritual discipline is a part of our interaction with God, and we're going to kind of learn how to understand it here. If you're not a Christ follower, the way that you want to translate this conversation is it is into God bringing you to himself, right? So you're gonna see that spiritual discipline is all about pride and humility, right? So one of the first step, the, the first step of beginning to follow Christ is to humble yourself, to admit that you're a sinner and to confess your sins to God, ask for forgiveness and, and humble yourself and submit or surrender to God. So if you're not a Christ follower, you wanna try and translate things kind of that way, If you are a Christ follower, you want to translate it as a child would translate the discipline of a loving parent. And that's what's happening to Jonah. Now, this is what spiritual discipline is not for those of us who are Christ followers, right? Spiritual discipline is not trials. So the book of James talks about trials and says that God will allow trials or obstacles or sharpening in the believer's life. And that we're to count that as pure joy because he's refining us, he's maturing us and completing us. So when we face a trial, it's much how a coach would introduce a trial into an athlete's life to help that athlete perform better. So your coach might look and say five more wind sprints or, or do, you know, you do extra lifting or extra work because it will really help you do better or just like burpees in general, right, or just trials, right? So, so it's a, it, that's the mindset of a trial. I see something in you. You don't see it in yourself. I'm going to help bring that out by, by introducing this. It's an act of love where to counter it as joy. So discipline is not trials, Discipline is also not persecution. So the Bible actually says in several places, Jesus says it really clearly in Matthew chapter five in the Beatitudes, he says, be happy or blessed are those, or happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So one of the things Jesus promises Christ followers is he says, in this world you will have trouble because you follow me. So persecution is when I am doing what's right I am doing what's godly, and ungodly people are persecuting or causing struggles or trials uh, directed toward me because I am doing what's right. And Jesus says you're actually blessed. You actually stand in a long line of Christ followers who have been persecuted, and you're to think of that as a, as a joy or an honor that that persecution would come to you, okay? So discipline is not trials. It's not persecution. It's Discipline. And the idea of spiritual discipline is this, and and we'll see all of this here in a minute in the Bible. The idea of spiritual discipline is this. I'm a child of God, and I know what God says. I have no confusion about it, all right? It's not me struggling with a bad habit. It's not me being unclear about, oh, I didn't know the Bible said it, or that's what the Bible meant. It's the low-hanging fruit in the Bible. I know what God says, I know exactly what it means, and I am not going to do it. I harden my heart, I close my mind, and I rebel against God. I become obstinate against God. That's what Jonah's doing. Jonah was not unsure what God, oh, you meant Nineveh, I thought you meant Jonah. That's not what happened here, right? He knew exactly what God wanted, and he looked at God and said, I am not doing it. And it was a rebellious heart, a hard heart, right, a defiant heart. And God looked and said, okay, I love you, so I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to bring an act of discipline into your life to deal with this pride so that you will humble yourself and you will realign with me, okay? So as a Christ follower, that's what you're looking at. There's something, I know what the Bible says about, you know, whatever, and I'm not doing it. I know what the Bible says about, Jeff brings it up all the time, and he always looks at me when he says it, which isn't true. You just feel convicted, although sometimes your wife did send an email, I'm just saying, right? So it is, so, but it's that point in my life, I know what I'm supposed to do, I'm not doing it, and I've decided to rebel against God. And this is where we find Jonah, and this is where this is showing up in our conversation this week, okay? Now, What does God have to say about spiritual discipline? Let me show you this. Flip to the right in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 12, page 844, God spends two-thirds of a chapter of the Bible talking about spiritual discipline or disciplining children of God, okay? So if God spends three-quarters of a chapter on something, it's a big, big deal to him, and it's a prevalent part of our life. So this is what he says when it comes to spiritual discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his sons? And then he quotes Proverbs. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his child. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate nor true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respect them for it. How much more shall we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They discipline us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level the paths of your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed, right? So the writer of Hebrews comes in and he says, this is is when discipline is going to play out, okay? He, He looks at children of God now, these are Christ followers, and he says this, Verse 4, he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. In a a modern vernacular here in, in Northeast Ohio, we would say it this way. God would look at us and say, listen, in your struggle against sin, you don't care about sinning anymore. In your struggle against sin, you're not struggling. That's the problem. Uh, and you know what the Bible says about uh, forgiving as you've been forgiven, and you will not forgive. And you know that you should go deal with that relationship, but you're not, I'm not doing it. You know what the Bible says about sexual immorality, right? It's all over the book. Jeff talks about it all the time, right? But I'm ignoring it. Like, I, I've ignored it for so long, it doesn't even bug me anymore. Uh, I know what the Bible says about generosity, but 10 per, 10%, you're kidding me, right? I am not doing that. Yeah, that one hit home for most of us, right? So it's like, I, I am not going to do that. I know what the Bible says about my language. I know what the Bible says about love. I know what the Bible says about compassion. No. And this is what the is striking at here. He's saying, in your struggle against sin, you don't struggle. You've become used to ignoring God it used to convict you and bother you, it doesn't anymore, you don't really care. When it when it comes up in the Bible or up in a sermon or something like that, it almost makes you mad instead of convicted because you're just sick of hearing about it. And he's saying in, in that struggle against sin, child of God now, you don't struggle anymore. And in fact, he goes on, he says this, in fact, you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement. You, 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 you are receiving this all wrong, and I want to encourage you. You've forgotten this. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastens everyone He accepts as His Son. You've forgotten that the reason this hot button thing bugs you or the reason this is always in front of you or the reason this drives you nuts is because God loves you. And the writer goes on, if God, if it doesn't drive you nuts, if it doesn't bug you, if it doesn't convict you, it means you're not a child of God because he doesn't discipline people who aren't his children. So you've forgotten that that feeling, that conviction, that bothersome thing is a loving God intervening in your life. God disciplines those he loves. It stinks because all discipline hurts when you're in the middle of it, but he does it because he loves you, and if you allow yourself to be trained by it, then it will produce a harvest of righteousness. So God looks then at us through the pages of scripture and he says, this is a a normal part of our relationship with God. As much as as a father, as a mother, a normal part of parenting is applying different aspects of discipline in your life, God would say, yeah, I'm bugging you because I love you and I'm bugging you because you've dialed out on sin. And I love you enough to deal with those things in your life and you are my daughter, you are my son, that is why I'm here. Now, this is exactly what Jonah's going through. So, if you go back to the book of Jonah, and and we read through chapter 2, you you see that this is exactly what God is doing in Jonah's life, right? So, he's in the fish, and from inside the fish, chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah starts to pray. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. He answered me, from, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. You listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounds me. Seed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank, and the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, and, and my prayer rose to you in your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I will shout, uh, I will, I with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And as we think about how God interacts with his children, and then we see God interacting with Jonah, what we want to do is we're going to pick apart chapter 2 here, and we're going to see how we can position ourselves when we're undergoing discipline. When I find myself in the belly of the fish, what math am I supposed to do as a child of God? And how do I interact with God? How do I receive what God is doing? And how how do I respond to him? Okay, so here's the first thing I wrote down: when when I'm in the belly of the fish, what math am I doing? First of all, I'm recognizing that the Lord placed me in the belly of the fish. The Lord placed me in the belly of the fish. It's fascinating that Jonah does that math. Look at verse three, chapter two. Jonah, he says, "You," he's talking to God, "You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents that swirl around me." all your waves and breakers, God, you created and made these waves and breakers that are sweeping over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threaten me, the deeps surround me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. God looks at Jonah, uh, Jonah looks at God and says, God, you did this. You put me in the belly of the fish. You have me in this place of discipline now guys listen this is a big deal one of the most predominant false teachings in our world today and the old word for this is heresy one of the one of the biggest heresies that's being taught in our world today is this that if i am a christian only good things happen to me if i'm a christian only good things happen to me that's a lie that's an absolute lie it's not in the bible you find that in the bible i'll give you my house it's not in the bible right If I'm a Christian, only good things happen to me. Now, this is what happens. If I believe that, if I believe that if I'm a good person, I will get good things, if I believe that lie, that heresy, what happens is I do bad math when bad things happen. So every time something painful, a trial, a persecution, or discipline happens in my life, I assume that God has abandoned me because only good things happen to Christians, And I will do that math wrong. And every time something painful happens in my life, instead of receiving it as encouragement that my father loves me and is interacting with me, I just think the devil's out to get me. The devil's out to get me. Oh man, the devil's out to get me. Right, I can't believe it, the devil. And we'll do this bad math. Jonah, as he's undergoing this trial, does the correct math and he looks and says, God, you did this. You did it. It it wasn't spiritual warfare. It wasn't the devil. You did it. You are disciplining me. You swallowed me. It's your waves that you created. You put me in the belly of this fish. Now, guys, listen. I want you to catch this, right? This is big. If God did not love Jonah, if he did not love Jonah, then he would have let Jonah get away with it. If he did not love Jonah, he would have let Jonah get away with it. But because he loved Jonah, he stood up to him, he interfered, and he disciplined him. One of the greatest acts of God's wrath and judgment on a human being is when he allows us to no longer care if we follow him or not. Let let me show you this. Grab your Bibles, flip over to the book of Romans, chapter 1. In Romans, chapter 1, God is talking about people who are not Christ followers. So these are not Christians. They're not followers of Jesus. These people have hardened their hearts. They've convinced themselves that there is no God. They have a rebellious spirit. They have a defiant attitude toward God. They look at God and say, "I, I don't want you to exist. You don't exist because I don't want anybody to tell me what to do in my life but me. And they have, they have really kind of laid down their, their anchor right there, and they're not moving. And they, in essence, look at God and say, I don't want you a part of my life. I don't want you a part of my life. I don't want you a part of my life. Get out of my life. Let me do what I want. And the Bible teaches here in, in Romans chapter 1 that God, in an act of judgment and wrath, will look at them and say, fine. Do whatever you want, and I will no longer bug you about it. Jo- uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Because of this attitude, verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the, the sinful desires of their heart. Fine. You want to do that? Go ahead. You won't feel guilty. You won't feel shamed. You won't be bothered anymore. I will give them over to the sinful desires of their heart, to sexual impurity, for the grading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them Over to a depraved mind, so that they uh, that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice it. God looks at these people. These are not Christ followers, but he looks at people who have now hardened their heart and closed their mind, and they say, I know what you say. I know what the Bible says. I know what the church teaches. I'm not doing it. Leave me alone. Shut up and leave me alone. And God, in an act of judgment and wrath, says, okay, you want me out of your life? I'm out. I give you over. You don't want to feel bad about living in sin anymore? You don't. I sear your conscience is the way the Bible says it. You don't want to to quit wondering if you should make your life right with God? You don't have to wonder anymore. I give you over to a depraved mind. You want to quit searching for truth because I've written that on your heart, but you want to ignore that? Fine. Just invent, invent your own. And if you want me out of your life, I'm out. And ultimately, what hell is, is God giving people what they want. The trajectory of their life just continues into eternal punishments. How you go to hell, right? If God did not love his child Jonah, he would have let him go. All right, Jonah, just never mind. Because he loved him, he disciplined him. Because he loved him, he put him in the belly of the fish. Guys, listen. In your struggle against sin, if you have been ignoring the clear directives of Scripture and you are becoming numb to it, you're in trouble. If you know the Bible says that and for, it's, a, it's a habit, now, I just ignore them, I don't even care, whatever, you know, you're in a very dangerous place because your heavenly Father Loves you enough to chase you, and the more you harden your heart, the more that that independent pride rares up, the deeper trouble you're in spiritually. Jonah looked and said, "God, you put me here." And he didn't do that with a clenched fist and a raised hand. He, he just started doing math. "Oh, Lord, I, I know why I'm in the fish. I know exactly what you told me to do. I didn't have a theological question about it. I just said no. And God loved him and pursued him and disciplined him. And here's the second thing I'd encourage you to remember. When you're in the belly of the fish, we need to be careful not to despise discipline, but to embrace it as a lesson. Not to despise discipline, but to embrace it as a lesson, right? So, So, you ever had somebody give compliance that you know is not genuine? All of us who are parents when our kids are little, like, go tell your sister you're sorry. Sorry. You know they don't mean it, right? So, we've all done it. We've all seen it. And the temptation is, I'll say whatever I have to say to get out of this fish. But you don't see this in Jonah. I I read uh, one author. He said this. I thought this was great. He said, Jonah might have been tempted to think of the fish as a prison God thought of the fish as a place of resurrection. Catch that. Jonah might have been tempted to think of the fish as a prison. God thought of it as a place of resurrection. In fact, you see Jonah struggling with this in verse 6. He says this, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. He had that in his mind. He's like, I'm locked away from God. I'm in a prison. I'm getting my punishment. I knew it was coming, right? He was struggling with that. But it's fascinating to get the Lord's perspective, and you can pick it up actually back in chapter 1 and verse 17. Look at it. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and in three nights. The scholars of the scripture will tell you that's a foreshadowing of Jesus in the tomb. Jesus was in the tomb three days and three nights, and it's a foreshadowing. The Old Testament does that a bunch. So Jonah's in the fish for three days and three nights. He's in the grave, you could say, for three days and three nights. Jonah's tempted to see that as a prison. I'm I'm locked in the grave for three days and three nights. I'm barred from God. But God viewed it as a place of resurrection. Whether the grave is a prison or the grave is a place of resurrection all depends on whether the power of God shows up in it. Because at Easter time, we don't celebrate the grave as a place of defeat, do we? The story doesn't end with the grave. We're like, oh, yeah, Jesus died, so here we are at Easter. That's not, right? We celebrate the grave as a place of victory. Why? Because the power of God showed up in the grave, and so we think of the grave as a place of triumph. Jonah looked and said, I felt barred from you, God, but I want to receive what you're trying to give me. I'm accepting that you love me. You put me in the fish. I know why I'm here. And I want to allow you to do what you want to do in me. Guys, a place of discipline. Rock bottom can mean several different things. If you go to rock bottom and you live at rock bottom, then you're a bottom dweller. But if you go to rock bottom and it breaks your pride, then rock bottom is not a place of torture. It's not a place of imprisonment. Rock bottom is a place of resurrection. Rock bottom is where my life starts over. The belly of the fish, the discipline of God, is not a place where you go until he gets his pound of flesh off of your hide. The belly of the fish is a place where a loving father will put you so that the will will break. The pride will be surrendered. And it's the place that you resurrect. It's where your new life can start again. This is exactly how you receive Jesus, by the way, if you're not a Christ follower. You go to rock bottom spiritually. You agree with God that you're at rock bottom. I'm dead in my sin. I admit that. And then at rock bottom, I'm defeated. I can't save myself. I'm destined for hell. I look to God and I invite God and the power of God brings spiritual resurrection to that place of death in your life. And it's from that place then what Christ did, the power of God in me that I have sal- salvation and forgiveness and a new life in Christ. See, The same thing is true for the believer. Why am I in the fish? Well, Jonah recognized I- I'm in the fish because God put me in the fish. So now what I do is I'm, I'm embracing what God wants to teach me in this fish. And I'm, I'm letting it be a place of resurrection And new life in me. And then the the third thing I wrote down was this. It's tied to it. When I'm there and I embrace it for what it is, how I do that is I remember the heart and the mind of God. I dial back into the heart of my Savior. Look again at Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, right? In the roots of the mountains I sank, the earth beneath barred me in forever. Here it is. But I'm embracing God's heart. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, what did I do? I remembered you, Lord. Wait a minute. This is, this is my father who told me to go to Nineveh. I've done this before. What, what, what am I doing? This is my God who loves me, my God who saved me, my God who gave me the mercy and forgiveness that I accepted as the same God that wants to give mercy and forgiveness to Nineveh. What am I doing? I remembered you, Lord. I remembered your heart and your mind, and my prayer rose to you in your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but not me. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. I'm in the belly of the fish. Why? Because I rebelled. Because I became defiant against God, I know what he wants me to do and just refuse to do it. What's happening in my life? The devil getting me? No, the devil's got nothing to do with it. I'm handling this all on my own. God placed me in that fish. Why? To bring about humility so that I can reestablish my relationship with him. I'm accepting that lesson. I'm humbling myself and then I'm remembering the goodness of my God. I'm accepting what he's doing, back to Hebrews, as encouragement, that he loves me enough to pursue me to these links. Hebrews chapter 12, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline is pleasant at the time. It's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. And Jonah embraced this, and he was trained, right? He reconnected with God. And here's the good news. As soon as Jonah did that and accepted it, what happened? Verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Done. Fish mission accomplished, right? The minute I humble myself and I repent, I realign with God, I get projectile vomited out of the belly of the fish, you know the Bible talks about this in the New Testament too you know the only time in the whole Bible where God promises physical healing is in James chapter 5. In James chapter 5 the Bible is really clear that some people are sick because they have rebelled against God and there's all kinds of biblical precedents for this where somebody rebelled against God became defiant against God and God like gave him leprosy or made him blind or whatever you know like he would do that And the Bible says this, if that's the case with you, if you're in the belly of the fish and the belly of the fish looks like a physical sickness, what you do is you call the elders of the church, they lay hands on you, they anoint you with oil, they pray for you, and the one who is sick will be healed. It's the only promise of healing in the the whole Bible, of absolute healing in the whole Bible. Why? Because we're done. God would look at that person that he caused to be sick out of discipline and say, you know, you repented, your heart's soft, you're aligned with me, you're healed, done, boop, out of the fish. God is not being spiteful to his children. He's not being vengeful at his children. He's not putting us in a, a, a purgatory or an ongoing punishment. He's looking and saying, listen, you have to stop this. I am going to get your attention when you yield your heart, we're done. Discipline's over. I love you. That's why we're going through this, and I want you to be trained by it, and when you are, we're finished, right? So this is a part of our lives. If you're a follower of Christ, it's part of your life. It's our relationship with God, and it's all through the Bible, right? It just happened to come up here in Jonah. That's what we're talking about, but it's all through the Bible, It is something that we need to know and understand and how to respond to, right? So I want to talk about this for a few minutes. What do we do with this? Here's my paranoia. My paranoia is that you go out of here this weekend and you start looking for bellies of fish, like, is God disciplining for me for this? I, I don't know. I thought a dirty thought. Now I'm bald. Like, what? You know, so it's like, that, that's my paranoia is we start attaching all this to these things. And, and if we're not careful, we can like look for a fish behind every corner. That is the wrong way to approach spiritual discipline. It's, you would be very mistaken to look for a fish around every corner. This is what you need to look for. Ready? what you look for in spiritual discipline is not the fish. What you look for in spiritual discipline is the rebellion. Don't look for the fish. Look for the rebellion. Is there a part of my life where I am crystal clear what God says? No ambiguity. I'm not confused. I'm not… It's not a sin that I struggle with because we all have those. I have them too right my, my heidi and my closest friends would know those sins i'm always like ah oh, man <clears throat> like it's a frustration it's a sin i'm struggling with we're not talking about that we're talking straight up the bible says it and i am not doing it don't look for the sin don't look for the fish look for the rebellion and when i find the rebellion now i can start doing some math on the fish oh The Bible says I'm to forgive as I'm forgiven. The Bible says I'm to love as I'm loved. The Bible says to rid myself of all bitterness, anger, slander, malice, and brawling, and I have refused to even try to reconcile with my father because he's the biggest jerk in the world. Maybe that's why my relationship with my kids is breaking down. That's the belly of the fish that I'm in. I know exactly what the Bible says about sexual purity, and I refuse because, oh, here he goes. He's talking about it again. I refuse. Maybe that's why there's so much insecurity in my relationship because it's not godly. I know it's crystal clear. I know exactly what the Bible says about tithing. Right? Malachi is the, the only thing in the whole Bible God says to test him on. Only thing. I know, and I'm not doing Maybe that's why we're always broke. Could it be... That God is interacting spiritually. But don't look for fish. You'll get paranoid and you'll become a legalist. Don't do that. Look for rebellion. And it's the parts of your life that are, are the, the, the touchy parts for you spiritually. The things that you're pretty sure it's all Jeff ever talks about. Because you have a unique sensitivity to it, right? And you've got to fill in your own blank there. But look for that. And then you can start doing some math on the fish. And then you can take... What do I do in the fish? Well, it's these things. Right, I need to yield to God again. So remember that. Here's the second thing I want you to remember. I want you to remember that Jonah could have repented on the boat. So, so the fish wasn't the first thing that God did to get his attention, right? The first thing he did was tell him to go to Nineveh. He's like, nope. The second thing he did was to send the storm. And then we wound up in the fish. And this is where all of us undergo spiritual discipline all the time, right? Because we can, we can stop ourselves in kind of the beginning stages of our rebellion and repent. I do this all the time, so I, I have weaknesses, right? One of my weaknesses is my pride. I, sometimes I get lost in how amazing I am. I mean, truly, I'm just like, I am amazing, right? <laughs> And when I do that, I know it's a weakness of mine, so I get lost in how amazing I am, and what I wanna do is I wanna take that thought captive, is what the Bible says. I wanna submit it to God, and it usually sounds like this. I get lost in how amazing I am, and then my brain, it usually sounds like this. What am I doing? What am I doing? God, forgive me. I, I I don't even know where that came from. Forgive me. Jonah could have repented before he bought a ticket, Jonah could have repented after he first got on the boat at Joppa. He could have been 100 yards out to sea and said, God, what am I doing? And there would have been no storm, and there would have been no fish. He kept doubling down, and so the discipline kept amping up, correct? So we need to remember this as in our human nature we're rebellious, But in my relationship with God, as I interact with God's word and the Holy Spirit empowers that in my life, I can stop this rebellion by yielding to God. And I don't have to wind up smelling like fish vomit. Right? So you need to do that. And here's the last thing. I want you to remember that God is after your heart. He is not after your behavior. This is the other thing that that makes me nervous with this. You can go out looking for fish, don't look for fish, look for rebellion. Don't forget, you can always repent at the dock before you get in the boat. And here's the third thing. We can equate this to to behavior, and when we equate it to behavior, what happens is we'll become legalistic. I did these ten things, I must be synced up with God. No, God is not after your behavior, he's after your heart, right? And this is the way that a, a loving parent works right? I'm not after my children's behavior. I'm after their heart. So Heidi and I, we have six kids, right? And one of the things that Heidi and I do not care that much about is we don't really care if our kids' rooms are spotless. I could, I could kind of care less. Just close the door, for breeze it, right? Whatever. Like, we're, I, we just decided well, that's not a battle. That, that is a big deal to us. The only time I care if my kids' rooms are clean is if I told them to clean their rooms, if I told you to clean your room, now I care. I don't, I don't live for a clean room, I live for a submissive child. So if I tell you to clean your room and I go do something and I come back and your room's not clean, you're still trying to play Pokemon Go because that's a great way to invest your life, right? <laughs> so, it, and I look at you and I say, why is your room clean? You have some options. You could look at me and say, dad, I was trying to catch a squirrel in the neighbor's yard and, and like that. that's what I was trying to do, right? And I forgot. I'll go clean it right now. Okay, go clean it right now. You repented on the dock. We're good. I want your heart. I don't care about the room. Or you could double down. I told you to clean your room. I'm not cleaning my room. I will not submit to the man. (laughs) I am an individual. And you do not have authority over me. Uh Oh, you just started a war that you're not going to win and I'm going to enjoy right? You don't play that game with Papa Bear. I was playing with one of my kids the other day. I punched him. He goes, I'm going to call, I'm going to call child services and and be removed from the home. I said, don't make promises you can't keep, son. Don't do that, right? Yeah. You want to dig in with daddy? Daddy will go toe-to-toe with you. And I'll be honest with you, daddy's personality, he'll have a little fun doing it. It's a stress relief, right? Why? Because it's the pride. It's not the action. It's the pride. It's the hardening of the heart. God opposes the proud. Jonah, go to Nineveh. No. All right. I can play this game all day, Jonah. God's after your heart. He's not after your behavior. Don't get caught up in the behavior. Get caught up in the position of your heart. He opposes the proud, but he does what? He gives grace to the humble, mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation. He wants his kid back. That's where God's at. I want Nineveh to hear the gospel, Jonah. You gotta go tell him. No. All right, I want your heart back. Because you and I, we've, gone told, we've told people about the gospel before. Your bigotry toward the Ninevites, I can't accept that. I want your heart back, Jonah. And when your heart aligns with my heart you're out of the fish, all right? Okay, this is what I want us to do. I want us to take the next 12 minutes, and I want you to be still. My my bet is that you have not spent 12 minutes searching your soul this week, so don't get the next cup of coffee. You can hold it. Don't get the kids, and Pokemon's not real, so let's put our, our phones down and let's just be still and, and I, I want you guys to take advantage of the opportunity to, to be with God and why don't we pray and why don't you look for the rebellion in your life whether you're in the belly of the fish or you're standing on the dock in line to buy your ticket and give God that freedom to bang around in your heart and to align you anew that's what he wants with his children okay okay so let's humble ourselves, let's yield to God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, same, same thing. Humble yourselves, admit your need for Christ. Ask God for salvation. Don't worry about how to say it, worry about meaning it. God knows what you mean. Ask him to forgive you, and then yield. God, I, I'll follow you, even if you ask me to do crazy things like go to Nineveh, right? But let's be with God. These songs, they can be prayers. You can ignore them and just pray. Do whatever you want. But let's create time to chill, all right, for the next 12 minutes and let God have that freedom in our lives. All right, would you pray with me while the band comes out? Jesus, we love you. Help us in this, God. It's our nature to rebel, and you love us despite that. You love us so much that you'll pursue us. You won't let us go. And it's your grace and your mercy and your compassion and your forgiveness that we are completely dependent upon. So God, let us embrace that now. Let us humble ourselves and let you train us for who we should be. Lord, those of us who don't know you as Savior, let your kindness draw us to repentance. And the Holy Spirit, work deeply in the hearts of all of us and position us where you want us to be. Work in a powerful way in these moments, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.